Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by crnaeducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions, it's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to the Beyond the Mask podcast. This is the Anesthesia Alchemy edition, Terry and Gary Unplugged. Join hosts Gary Bridges and Terry Wicks as they deep dive into today's most important clinical conversations in a unique but educational way, in a humorous balance that only they can achieve. Let today's journey begin. Here are Terry and Gary with your next installment of Anesthesia Alchemy. Three, two, one. Welcome back to Anesthesia Alchemy, the podcast that delves into the mysteries of anesthesia. I'm Terry, and joining me, as always, is my good friend, golf buddy, and the fantastic <laughs> Gary Bridges. Hey, Gary, how's it going, man? Hey, Terry. Doing great. Excited to dive into today's topic, the intriguing world of Remy Mazalam and its rapid onset offset benzodiazepine magic, as we usually talk about on this show. And that's some good stuff. Um, I'm like I we were talking earlier. I've, I've um, read some stuff about this and heard some stuff about it. It sounds amazing, and it looks like they're trying to make our jobs easier and easier every year. Uh, pretty soon, uh, we might even look like we know what we're doing. But let's kick off by uh, understanding the mechanism behind Remy Mazalam. Right. Yeah, Remy Mazalam. Uh, not to be confused with Remy Midazolam which doesn't exist as of yet. <laughs> Anyways, like other benzodiazepines, it does bind to that beautiful GABA-A subtype receptor in the brain, modulating the activity of the major inhibitory transmitter, GABA-aminobutyric acid, also known as GABA. But what's fascinating is its carboxylic acid metabolite, CNS7054 in the research world, having 300 times lower affinity for the actual GABA-A receptor itself. It's like a precision tool in the world of, of sedation now as it starts to emerge onto the market. You know, and the journey of Remy Maslam is pretty fascinating. And according to Kilpatrick, it was part of a program that was initiated in the late 90s by Glaxo Welcome, focusing on novel intravenous sedatives with a short and predictable duration of action. Remy Maslam emerged as one of the lead compounds, but faced a little bit of a hiatus before its developmental journey ended. Yeah, that's right, Terry. It was kind of an interesting thing that this this product really has been around for uh, a few decades. You know, the project shifted hands through various acquisitions, as we see in big pharma world. Uh, you know, reaching manufacturers like CNS and and Payon, which are actually uh, companies over in Japan and China and Korea, where it was actually developed as a, uh, a basalate salt. And you know, the road to approval had its hurdles. Uh, you know, due to resource limitations. But now, Remy Mazalam has approvals for various applications 
you know, in anesthesia, as I said, Japan, uh, procedural sedation in the U.S., China, Europe, and even compassionate use in the intensive care in Belgium. Well, and you know, and there's another program in China with a slightly different salt form, Remimazolam Tosylate, which has gained approval for procedural sedation as well. Now, it's remarkable about how its pharmacological profile, similar to classical benzodiazepines, sets it apart with its rapid conversion to an inactive metabolite, resulting in that wonderful short onset and offset profile that we love so much. Absolutely. Beautiful stuff, Terry. Let's kind of pause for a minute and kind of go back a little bit and, you know, for those history buffs out there, let's talk a little bit about these agents in the context of intravenous benzodiazepines. You know, the first one with tranquilizing properties was chlordiazepine. Epoxide, which was synthesized back in 1950, and it led to a multitude of derivatives, including what we know as today and widely used midazolam or Versed. Yeah. You know, and midazolam, I mean, that was a game changer. I remember when I first started anesthesia, all we had was diazepam. And, you know, that stuff's got a half-life about as long in the, in, in hours as the patient's age and years. Uh, so it keeps us old folks asleep for a long, long, long while. But midazolam came along, water-soluble, doesn't burn when you inject it, has a super short duration of action. But, you know, it's not perfect. It has some shortcomings including a relatively slow recovery due to metabolism by cytochrome P453A4. And that's where the short-acting benzodiazepine discovery project comes into play. Yeah, you know, Glaxo Welcome, uh, that team embarked on this project, as you said earlier, in the late 1990s, aiming to really find novel sedatives uh, with a short and predictable duration of, of action. And certainly, Remimazolam, um, then known as the scientific name, GW502056. You can use that for a passcode in a bank account or something. That's <laughs> yeah, your uh, passcode for your email account. That's right. <laughs> Anyways, it stood out and, uh, you know, with its rapid onset, short duration, other favorable parameters, which I think we'll kind of review today. But despite, uh, despite the brief halt in the project, it eventually did make its way to CNES and, and Payon, which are the the Asian companies leading to its current approvals to where we see it now. You know, and the story doesn't end there. Another program in China initiated a second development with a different salt form, Remimazolam Toysolate, gaining approval for procedural sedation. And it's incredible how this compound has navigated its way through the complex landscape of drug development. You know, and it's it's fascinating, you know, the the way these uh, medications are, are um, changed and and altered to, to influence their pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic properties. But let's dive into the formulation and pharmacokinetics of Remimazolam Besolate. Absolutely, Terry. So Remimazolam Besolate uh, is formulated as a lyophilized product. Now there's a word of the day, lyophilized. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a little snowy white fringes yeah. on the tree limbs. And well, it's not, like it's a, powder. Like a snow globe. <laughs> it's a snow globe. Yeah. You know, lyophilized product for, and you do have to reconstitute it. So that means it's prepared by mixing it with a liquid, but not all liquids are compatible with this product. However, there is a catch. You know, as I allude to the sparing aqueous solubility of this agent, and that really means that relatively large administration volumes are needed to accommodate the dose required in the anesthesia setting. So, 
you know, it's an interesting aspect to consider in practical applications. It's not for everybody. Um, I'll say that right up front, and we'll, we'll go over some of that. Yeah. And according to Kyung Mi Kim, Remy Mazalam Bisolate is not only water-soluble, but is also an ultra-short-acting intravenous benzodiazepine. And it's gained approvals for general anesthesia and procedural sedation as well in various countries, showcasing its versatility. Yeah, you know, we've talked a little bit more about you know, its mechanism of action, which we'll go into a little bit deeper here, but similar to midazolam, remimazolam does enhance that GABA-A receptor activity, inducing cell membrane hyperpolarization, inhibiting the neural activity through an increase in chloride influx through that channel. But what sets it apart in its design is as a, what is known as a soft drug, where it incorporates a carboxylic ester moiety into the benzodiazepine core. And that structural modification, along with its rapid hydrolysis to an inactive metabolite, leads to that fast onset and offset of sedation when administered. Well, thank goodness for those nonspecific plasma esterase. These are a lifesaver, aren't they? <laughs> but here's the kicker. Uh, all else failing, flumazenil can be used to reverse the sedation effects of remimazolam, adding a yet another extra layer of control and safety. You know, it's favorable properties including rapid onset, organ-independent metabolism, short duration of action, and predictable recovery. The availability of a reversal agent and a superior safety profile make Remimazolam stand out among all the other short-acting sedative drugs. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the pharmacokinetics. You know, in previous phase one studies involving healthy volunteers, Remimazolam exhibited a relatively high clearance small steady state volume of distribution and a short elimination half-life, as well as a short context-sensitive half-time and linear pharmacokinetics, which is just great. What we like to see in a, in a profile of a drug like that that's quick on, quick off, you know, these properties obviously contribute to its predictability and controllability um, in the nature of the drug itself when we use it. Yeah, you can't overlook the importance of having that short, context-sensitive half-time when you start using these drugs for long-acting infusions. But again, the initial phase uh, one dose-finding study compared remimazolam with midazolam, revealing that remimazolam had a smaller volume of distribution and a higher elimination clearance than the parent midazolam compound. The mean residence times and terminal half-life values of remimazolam were significantly shorter than those of midazolam, indicating a more rapid onset of action and a more rapid offset of action as well. Yeah, and it's also interesting to note, Terry, that uh, remimazolam is rapidly and extensively metabolized by tissue esterases, chiefly the liver carboxyl esterases, to a pharmacologically inactive carboxyl boxy acid metabolite, also known as, wait for it, CNS7054. And that metabolite is a different pharmacokinetic uh, profile. In recent trials, using 3D bioreactor systems, that's a mouthful there. Uh, that sounds dangerous. <laughs> it does, right? It's almost <laughs> like futuristic. But yeah. it has demonstrated stable metabolism over an extended period of time, which is a, which is a nice thing to have with this drug. And so the drug's predominantly urinary excretion and high plasma protein binding, mainly to serum albumin, contribute to its overall pharmacokinetic profile. Now, simulated mean context-sensitive halftime, CSHT as we like to say, analysis showed that the offset of remimazolam after infusion sensation 
Cessation, sensation, cessation. <laughs> After cessation is faster than midazolam, but similar to our old friend propofol. The CSHT of remimazolam appeared to be relatively independent of the infusion duration, suggesting that there's not a change in its context-sensitive halftime. Uh, be still, my heart. And, um, <laughs> and it reaches its maximum after about two hours. Yeah, you know, another important consideration is how remimazolam's pharmacokinetic properties, they may vary in different populations, which they do. And fortunately, studies have shown that there's no significant difference in the elderly, which is something that we got to consider when we're using midazolam. You know, patients with normal renal function and those with mild to moderate hepatic dysfunction. Now, that's an important one, mild to moderate hepatic dysfunction. Because remember, those esterases that break this drug down are primarily in the liver. So people with or patients with severe hepatic impairment may actually, you know, experience increased exposure or prolonged elimination suggesting that you need to use careful dosage adjustment for that population specifically, or maybe not even use it in that population uh, if there's significant impairment. Yeah, you bet, Gary. You know, it's crucial to understand how remimazolam behaves in various uh, clinical scenarios. And these pharmacokinetic insights provide valuable information for anesthesiologists and healthcare providers that are using this medication. Yeah, you know, and, and remimazolam taking some of its inspiration admittedly from midazolam, but it does introduce that molecular twist that we've talked about, that carboxylic ester linkage. And this design choice makes or defines remimazolam as a soft drug. And in the realm of pharmacology, a soft drug is intentionally crafted to be susceptible to rapid biotransformation into inactive metabolites. And this strategy is successfully employed in the development of remifentanil, another non, well, that one's non-hepatically uh, metabolized fentanyl derivative, as we know. Um, another interesting drug that I'm sure is core to some people's practices. Yeah. And, you know, it, it it's interesting because, you know, remifentanil was really that first opiate that we had that had a very rapid onset offset and didn't change its context-sensitive halftime uh, in any appreciable way uh, either. So this soft drug approach ensures that remimazolam is swiftly hydrolyzed by tissue esterases, leading to an inactive metabolite, meaning it, it doesn't have any pharmacodynamic effects. So what's noteworthy is that this process is independent of the cytochrome P450 enzyme system, making it an organ-independent metabolism. It's fascinating how drug design principles contribute to the unique characteristics of remimazolam. Attention all certified nurse anesthetists. Are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option? Well, look no further than crnaeducation.com. We are an NBCRNA recognized provider offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior approved Class A CE credits with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. Need pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well with over 40 pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. 
To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com, your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com. Let's talk a little bit about the star feature of this drug, and that is its rapid onset of action. You know, the sedative effects kick in within about one to one and a half minutes after administration of Remy Maslam, and with a mean time to peak sedation, usually somewhere around three to three and a half minutes following an initial five milligram dose. It's impressive how this actually takes effect, and I've talked to a number of colleagues that use it uh, primarily in interventional radiology, but some do use it in, in endoscopy suite. So pretty sweet and predictable. You know what? You're absolutely right, Gary. What's equally remarkable is the rapid offset of this medication's action. The median time to full alertness ranges from anywhere from 11 to 14 minutes following the last dose, and that's really quick. So it's crucial for patients to recover swiftly after sedation, and Remy Mazalam seems to excel in that aspect. Yeah, and its rapid action is actually complemented by metabolism. So as we've noted here, Remy Mazalam boasts a cytochrome P450 independent metabolism with no active metabolites. So that is, it does not go through cytochrome P450 pathway. And that's the reason why it results in its its short terminal half-life of about 37 to 53 minutes. And that ensures that patients experience a quick and predictable recovery when we abate using the drug. Well, let's get practical for just a minute. You know, how is Remy Maslam administered for adult patients? Well, for induction, a five milligram intravenous dose over a one minute period is what's recommended. And the maintenance dose, if needed, involves a minimum two minute interval before any supplemental administration of the drug. The additional doses are administered at two and a half milligrams intravenously over 15 seconds. That's pretty handy. That is. And, you know, for adults that are actually classified as ASA 3 through ASA 4, the induction involves administering a slightly lower dose at two and a half milligrams to five milligrams intravenously over a minute. And that's just based on the general conditions of that patient, what their comorbidities and and other factors that may, um, you know, stimulate you to maybe consider something a little bit less as far as the dosing goes. But the maintenance follows a similar protocol with this minimum two minute interval before any supplement dose or doses of 1.25 milligrams to 2.5 milligrams intravenously over about 15 seconds in these patients. Why does it sound too hard? You know, it's interesting to note that no dosing adjustments are needed for BMI, making it a versatile option across very different patient profiles. Indeed, Terry. And you know, the precision in dosing and rapid response make Remy Mazalam a compelling choice in the realm of anesthesia, especially as we note here, those with Significant comorbidities and, um, you know, BMIs that are starting to trend upwards on the scale. Um, So when Remy Maslam is administered intravenously, it enhances that activity for the gamma subunit containing subunit of the the GABA-A receptors. And that leads to the cell's membranes hyperpolarization. It inhibits that neural activity that we talked about earlier through increasing calcium or uh, chloride influx much like its predis- uh, predecessor, midazolam. So remimazolam doesn't show a clear selectivity for different subtypes of the GABA-A receptor, but we do know that that, that gamma subunit um, is definitely one of the ones that, if there's anything involvement, that's the one. 
Well, and it is all about that chloride conductance. That's exciting stuff. And that hyperpolarization of that excitable membrane. Oh, boy, I get short of breath just thinking about it. So let's talk for just a second. It does tingle. (laughs) And when we talk about the sedative effects, you know, there's other parameters like the electroencephalogram, EEG, if you will, beta ratio, the bispectral index or BIS, the narcotread index, and the modified observer's assessment of alertness sedation scores. Wow, now that's a mouthful. You just took the words out of my mouth. (laughs) Let's say, let's call it the MOAA backslash S scale. Uh, But anyway, Remy Maslam exhibits a rapid onset and offset with a dose-related depth and duration of sedation. You know, in studies, it showed a peak faster uh, sedation and recovery compared to midazolam. That's right, Terry. You know, in fact, a continuous Remy Maslam infusion actually resulted in deeper sedation and a more rapid recovery when it was compared to its its sister compound, midazolam, or brother, I'm not sure which... Anyway, sounds the, like an incestuous <laughs> sort of a thing. <laughs> it is in the same family, so yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. there you go. <laughs> the uh, non-cumulative sedative effects, though, of Remy Maslam was observed, and approximately nine hours during general anesthesia, showcasing its rapid offset and short context sensitive half time. As we get back to those initials, there the CSHT. Wow. <laughs> careful, careful, my friend. <laughs> All right. Let's take a, take a second, shift our focus a little bit to the EEG effects, uh, the EEG-derived hypnotic index, if you will. In anesthesia practice, processed EEG-based hypnotic depth indicators are crucial. For midazolam, we've seen predominant beta activation. However, Remy Maslam's effects on EEG haven't really been fully clarified. Studies have shown an initial transient power increase in the beta frequency band and a subsequent power increase in the delta frequency band during remimazolam infusions. Yeah, you know, when it comes to assessing the depth of sedation, the BIS index optimized for propofol may not provide the same as you allude to linear correlation with remimazolam. You know, and there's a need for further studies to determine that appropriate range of the EEG-derived hypnotic index for Remy's Maslam anesthesia. And I will say, not just to look at those EEG signals, but density spectral array that is now incorporated into brain monitoring um, technologies is probably what we need to be looking at to look at that signature profile or or electronic fingerprint um, that the agent will actually sew. Because every intravenous anesthetic that we use, you can see very interesting density spectral array fingerprints and, and whatnot um, on the devices. So be excited in time. Some, anybody out there want a research project? Here you go. <laughs> Here's, this is a fertile, fertile ground to plow, if you will. Wow. Well, on a little bit more practical note, let's talk a little bit about target control infusions. Uh, target control infusion or TCI is a method used to infuse IV drugs while maintaining a user-defined predicted drug concentration. And while TCI is well-established for drugs like propofol and remifentanil, there's a little bit of controversy around its application in remimazolam, wouldn't you say, Gary? Yeah, indeed, Terry. You know, and a trial revealed that in simulations, steady-state concentration after remimazolam infusions and propofol infusions was achieved after about 60 minutes and uh, more than 60 minutes for propofol, respectively. So that suggests that TCI for Remy Maslam could actually be reasonable and beneficial um, for monitoring. So 
However, you know, challenges do exist in developing appropriate, uh, you know, PKPD models for diverse populations, as well as clinical settings. So I think, you know, the drugs finding where its niche is, uh, again, you know, it's not for everything and everybody, but, um, you know, I think we'll see its adoption, uh, especially in the non-OR sites. Yeah, there's no doubt uh, the, the anesthesia community is in love with rapid onset and offset uh, medications and the intricacies, I love that word, intricacies, uh, intricacies of Remy Maslam's pharmacodynamics open up avenues for future research ensuring its optimal use in various medical scenarios, anesthetic and otherwise sedation, diagnostic, surgery, and moving on to the clinical considerations, it's crucial to highlight some important factors that healthcare professionals need to bear in mind when they're using Remy Maslam clinically. Yeah, you know, Terry, and the first and foremost one, as we've alluded to a little bit earlier, is patients with hepatic impairment. You need to be careful in dose titrating those patients because of the half-life of Remy Maslam is definitely prolonged in that population, especially with the increasing severity of hepatic impairment. And that emphasizes the importance of monitoring and adjusting your dosing accordingly. Yep, you're absolutely right, Gary. And interestingly, there is some data suggesting the potential greater sensitivity in older individuals, and that shouldn't really surprise any of us. So that might result in a more rapid onset of the loss of consciousness and a little bit longer duration of action. Folks my age, you know, I can't believe, well, we'll go into that later. Anyway, so administering supplemental doses slowly becomes crucial to achieve the desired level of sedation for procedures. You can always give more, but it's hard to get it back. <laughs> That's exactly right, Terry. You know, it's paramount also to monitor all patients for cardiorespiratory complications, no matter what drug. But again, with this one, um, certainly one of those concerns and safety, as you point out eloquently, Terry, is always our top priority in any medical procedure that Don't involves... Don't tell anybody you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Safety top priority, I know. Yeah. Hey, so let's talk a little bit practical application and day-to-day use in the operating room or in the sedition suite about the preparation of Remy Mazalam. Now, every single patient used vial contains lyophilized powder for reconstitution. That means you have to add liquid to it to make yeah. it. And it must be prepared immediately <laughs> prior to use. So to reconstitute, you have to add sterile uh, sodium chloride, 0.9% USP, and gently, gently, and and cautiously swirl until it's fully and elegantly dissolved. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting excited already. (laughs) Swirl. Swirling. (laughs) And you know that reconstitution of the product actually gives you a final concentration of 2.5 milligrams per cc or per ml and it's worth noting that the reconstituted remy maslam can be stored in a vial for up to eight hours at controlled room temperature you know and once removed from the packaging always protect the vials from light I'm still swirling. (laughs) (laughs) Gently. I'm gently swirling. (laughs) All right. Hey, so when it comes to administering uh, the drug with other fluids, think about this. Remy Maslam has been shown to be compatible with fluids like 0.9 or normal saline, uh, sodium chloride injection, 5% dextrose injection, a USP 20% dextrose injection, 5% dextrose and half normal saline or 0.45 saline injection, and Ringer's solution. Yeah, so you got to be careful with that one. Um, crucial to note that there is some incompatibility with Remy 
Mazlam, and that is with lactated ringer solution and acetated ringer solution. So compatibility with other agents hasn't completely been evaluated. So the key takeaway here is not to mix Remy-Mazlam with other drugs or other fluids prior to administration. Definitely the ones that, that Terry has, has outlined are the ones to really use. And typically it's the saline is, is the best one or just straight up water. But yeah, <clears throat> you, you can't go wrong with normal saline, right? No. And so, um, you know, when we're mixing medications and reconstituting drugs in the OR, we got to be careful. We got to follow the rules for patient safety. And so these considerations that Gary outlined are absolutely vital for healthcare professionals to ensure the safe and effective use of Remy-Mazlam in all clinical settings. Now, let's delve into the indications for Remy-Mazlam. Why and when would we give this medication? It's a benzodiazepine indicated for the induction and maintenance of procedural sedation in adults undergoing procedures lasting 30 minutes or less. So some short stuff. Yeah, you know, procedural sedation is a critical aspect of a lot of medical procedures that we're performing outside of the operating room, especially those that may cause discomfort. You know, Kilpatrick uh, and his colleagues emphasized the significance of procedural sedation in reducing pain, anxiety, and providing amnesia for various diagnostic and interventional procedures. And so, one thing to note here is that Remy-Mazlam is not an opioid, so it doesn't treat pain. It is a sedative hypnotic, not a pain management agent. So your drug of choice of however you're going to manage the P or pain. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, things like uh, endoscopy and interventional procedures in cardiology, among others, uh, are a good place for this. And clinical trials for Remy-Maslam for procedural sedation have been conducted with a focus on colonoscopy, upper gastrointestinal endoscopy, bronchoscopy, uh, and even hysteroscopy. Yeah, you know, the early studies like phase two trials, dose range finding studies and colonoscopies actually showed successful sedation in over 70% of the subjects, demonstrating both fast onset, as we've mentioned, and offset of sedation. You know, the subsequent phase two trials in upper GI endoscopy, colonoscopies, and hysteroscopies explored different dosing and comparators like midazolam and propofol, and it showcased the varied success rates based on the procedure and analgesic co-treatment. So again, it's not an agent that treats pain. So you're going to have to select your analgesic to uh, manage the pain component if, if there is any. Moving on to the phase three studies, they were conducted with both Remy-Maslam bisolate and Remy-Maslam toysolate in colonoscopies and upper gastrointestinal endoscopies. Now, these studies consistently demonstrated high sedation success rates with Remy-Maslam, surpassing midazolam or placebo groups in terms of success rates, procedural initiation times, and time to return to full alertness. Yeah, that's right, Terry. You know, Remy-Maslam groups consistently outperform in terms of procedure initiation times, time to return to full alertness, and hypotension occurrences. So the tosylate phase three trials comparing Remy-Mazolam tosylate with propofol showed statistically non-inferior sedation success rates. Now that's a tongue twister, meaning it was better. <laughs> with some interesting observations though, like you know, slower onset time in the colonoscopy study, but faster offset time in the upper 
gastrointestinal um, endoscopy studies for Remy Maslam. So just one thing to note here, and you know, I think people always look at what's the direct cost, and, and it's about $45 a vial. But if you consider every minute in the holding or recovery area is between $20 and $45 a minute, if you're shaving off 10 minutes for every case, you're more than, you're now actually adding profit margin because now you're building capacity. So you got to kind of take it in context as far as if you can get more savvy with the drug and save time on the back end because uh, you're getting a more predictable, you know, this is really the surgeon's ideal drug, right? It's like flip the switch on, put them to sleep, flip the switch off. <laughs> now they need to wake up and walk out of the, uh, out of the center. So, well, yeah, cause I got to get to the office. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, besides that, though, um, and speaking particularly of upper gastrointestinal endoscopy, that's a mouthful. Um, Literally, it is a mouthful. (laughs) I never thought about that. But, uh, you know, I've done a few upper GIs in in the GI lab um, where I've worked. And, you know, one of the things that I was always concerned about is continued ventilation. And again, we'll talk about this more later, but Remy Maslam uh, preserves ventilatory drive pretty well uh, compared to other medications like uh, propofol as well. So again, it's fascinating to see how Remy Maslam performs in various different procedural contexts and against other comparators. These studies emphasize its rapid onset and offset of sedation, you know, making it a pretty doggone valuable option for procedural sedation. Absolutely, Terry. You know, and it's it's evident that Remy Maslam's efficacy as well as safety profile makes it a promising choice for healthcare professionals managing procedural sedation in adults pretty much anywhere. Yeah. And not just in procedural sedation, but let's talk a little bit about where it might fit in with general anesthesia. Um, it's intriguing to note that benzodiazepines have been utilized historically to provide the hypnotic component of anesthesia. Uh, however, due to their variable effects, some of them with a very long extended durations of actions and a lack of control over anesthesia depth, they haven't been widely adopted for that particular purpose. Yeah, you know, and with the advent of Remy Maslam and its controllable short-acting effects, there's actually growing interest in its potential as an agent for general anesthesia. And we're going to go over a few of those reports uh, from four different clinical trials exploring the use of Remy Maslam for total intravenous anesthesia, um, which is in the literature now. Yeah. And a couple of these reports detail phase uh, two and three phase three trials, while the other two cover phase two trials. Now, the trials utilize continuous infusions of Remy Maslam bisalate, often in combination with an opiate analgesic like fentanyl or Remy fentanyl and neuromuscular blockade, usually with our old friend, reliable rocuronium. Yeah, you know, and unlike procedural sedation, these trials actually employ doses corrected for body weight. Uh, You know, although the data from the phase two studies are relatively sparse, they reported successful anesthesia, rapid onset of effect, and swift recovery after surgery. More importantly, there were no signs of awakening during surgery or any recall during the procedure. That might be a good thing. Yeah, I would think if it was me, I'd just do not have any recall. Uh, so for these phase two, three and phase three studies, 
you know, more detailed information has now been made available. Now, the induction of anesthesia involved a short infusion of 6 or 12 milligrams per kilogram per hour, and for maintenance, a dose of 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram per hour was used. Now, the primary endpoints defined by the lack of intraoperative awareness, a good thing, yes. or recall, uh, no requirement for rescue sedation, no body movements, and where they were successfully met for all subjects in both of these studies. Yeah, and it's interesting to see that the time to loss of consciousness was slightly longer for Remy Maslam compared to propofol, and the time for ceasing the infusion to extubation was also slightly longer for Remy Maslam. However, there is a lower incidence of hypotension in subjects that actually received Remy-Maslam when compared to propofol. Yeah, and you can't overlook that. I mean, all of us that have done clinical anesthesia with propofol, you know, recognize the cardiodepressant effects and, and hypotensive effects of propofol. So that's a crucial observation, Gary. You know, fewer patients treated with Remy-Maslam required vasopressors or treatment for bradycardia compared to propofol. Pain on injection was reported in subjects treated with propofol, but not, surprisingly, with Remy-Mazolam. The only adverse drug reaction higher in the Remy-Mazolam arm was a little bit of nausea and vomiting. Ugh, good old P-O-N-V. Well, it is uh -huh. worth noting that one of the studies specifically examined clinically vulnerable populations. Uh, and that's not the BMI group. It is the ASA <laughs> class three. Uh, oh, buddies. Yeah. You know, and the efficacy and safety data were very similar for um, ASA one and two patients when they looked at the ASA three patients. So that's a good thing. Yeah, that's encouraging. You know, the mean length of the procedures in the large phase two, three study was approximately 150 minutes. And the mean total dose of Remy Maslam was around 3.47 milligrams per kilogram. Oh, the accuracy. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Well, so Terry, it seems like Remy Maslam's not only showing promise in procedural sedation, but also in the realm of general anesthesia with its rapid onset, controllable effects, and a definite favorable safety profile. Absolutely, no question. You know, it's exciting to see how Remy Maslam's versatility makes it a potential candidate for various clinical situations catering to the unique needs of both procedural sedation and general anesthesia. So shifting our focus for just a few minutes to the clinical applications of Remy-Maslam, let's delve a little deeper into its role in procedural sedation. Now, procedural sedation is employed to facilitate the completion of diagnostic or therapeutic procedures, especially those that might be just a touch uncomfortable or painful for the patients. Yeah, you know, and the characteristics, as we note, of the ideal hypnotic agent for procedural sedations includes, we're going to say it again, fast onset of action, fast recovery, minimal residual sedation, ease of use, few adverse effects. Now, when we compare ramirazolam with other sedatives like midazolam, it becomes evident that you know ramirazolam has winning, unique advantages over its. Let's just say competitors, if you will. 
No question. No question, Gary. You know, unlike midazolam, which has an active metabolite that can prolong sedation times, remimazolam undergoes rapid hydrolysis and produces an inactive metabolite. You know, that makes remimazolam an ideal sedative, offering minimal residual sedation and organ-independent metabolism. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, you know, it's no surprise that its application procedural areas typically supplemented with an opioid, remimazolam definitely stands out. You know, in phase three trial studies involving 461 patients undergoing colonoscopies, procedural success was achieved in 91.3% of patients receiving remimazolam compared to 25.2% for midazolam and 1.7% for placebo plus midazolam rescue. Maybe I did it. They, they gave some <laughs> 461 colonoscopies. Yeah. That's wow. a... It was cleaned out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, Gary? These findings also indicated that fewer patients who received remimazolam experienced hypotension. Really, really important. Because sometimes when those colonoscopies get uncomfortable, you have to really bump up the propofol and you see a little bit of uh, blood pressure uh, suppression because of that. Now, they showed faster recovery compared to those who received midazolam. Now, this suggests that remimazolam can be safely administered for procedural sedation allowing for a swift recovery of neuropsychiatric function. You know, we keep beating the thing, you know, it's comparative to either midazolam or propofol. Um, but certainly, you know, remimazolam is not an inferior product in terms of uh, sedation efficacy. And, it, and it's, it does actually have a better safety profile when you compare it to propofol. You know, in a study involving 384 patients undergoing colonoscopy, the procedure rate, uh, successful procedure rate for remimazolam was similar to that of propofol. Um, and we look at those numbers, 91 point, or rather 96.91% versus 100%. But remimazolam had a more favorable safety profile. I mean, you cannot overlook that. Mm -mm. Uh, this pattern was consistent in another study on patients undergoing upper gastrointestinal endoscopy procedures as well. Yeah, and you know, again when we start talking about safety profile, we go back to, you know, physical status. And when we look at ASA threes, um, they were no different and at no more risk comparative to the ASA ones and twos. Well, and let's just, you know, tie a ribbon around this whole thought. So it looks like Remy-Mazolam emerges as a pretty safe and effective alternative to other widely used sedatives such as midazolam and propofol for IV sedation in patients undergoing various diagnostic and therapeutic procedures. So, you know, as we look ahead, you know, further clinical studies exploring patient experience, new formulations, post-market cost-benefit analysis, those things will play a crucial role in determining the widespread use of remimazolam for procedural sedation. Yeah, you know, Terry, and, you know, given its versatility and its favorable characteristics of remimazolam, you know, it really does make it a compelling option for procedural sedation. And, and now trying to explore where does it fit in the operating room itself. So let's start to look at some of those clinical applications a little bit more deeper and, and um, see what, what people are doing out there. So when let's take a let's take a look at at things like procedural sedation and general anesthesia dosing and administration of this particular drug. Now for procedural sedation in adults, the dosage of remimazolam should be titrated, well, always titrate to effect and individualized to achieve the desired clinical response. Yeah, and if people didn't get that earlier uh, in the discussion, you know the recommended induction dose for procedural sedation is 
five milligrams IV of remimazolam over one minute. And then you can administer additional two and a half milligrams um, over 15 seconds, at least two minutes between dosing. So again, this is a titration drug, you know. And then, as we said earlier, you know, if you've got your patients that are ASA 3s and 4s, you want to cut back that dose maybe in half. So two and a half to five milligrams, top up your doses at one and a quarter to two and a half based on that patient's condition as well as uh, the CRNA's discretion. Yep. And so the prescribing information emphasizes cautions related to sedation, including hypoxia, bradycardia, and hypotension. So we always have to be on the alert, mm-hmm. right? Anytime yep. that we're caring for patients, whether it's for procedural sedation or general anesthesia. But anyway, lem- uh, remimazolam should typically be administered by personnel trained in procedural sedation. That, may- that means, can you manage an airway and recognize when your patient's in trouble? So before administration, preparation should include the drugs and medications, personnel, and equipment for monitoring and resuscitating those important people in our lives, our patients. Absolutely. You bring up a crucial point, Harry, is while this drug is fast on, fast off, it's safety profile, we still need to continuously monitor the vital signs. And I know there are some people out there that are in non-OR environments and think, it's just a quick bump, we'll get in, we'll get out. And sometimes I hate to say, but cut corners, maybe put on a blood pressure cuff and a pulse oximeter and not an EKG or, you know, remember you need to have all your vital signs continuously monitored when using this agent. Yeah. For, for absolute certainty, you know, IV remimazolam, uh, because it's serving as the hypnotic component of total intravenous anesthesia, has been shown effectiveness compared to propofol with, as we said earlier, a little bit superior safety profile. You know, in a study involving surgical patients, uh, ASA 1 and 2, remimazolam, either 6 or 12 milligrams per kilogram per hour IV infusions were administered for induction, followed by an initial maintenance dose of a milligram per kilogram per hour. Eh, pretty good. Yeah, and, you know, and we've kind of brought this up with its comparison to, to propofol. The one thing of note, while they're fairly similar on-off uh, in some instances, but you have fewer hypotensive specific events and the need to use vasopressor treatment for things like hypotension or bradycardia when compared to propofol. Yeah. So in this in the sub- subsequent trials, they they confirmed that remimazolam's utility as the hypnotic component of TIVA, especially for clinically vulnerable patients, those some of our most fragile patients. You know, whether we're using an induction regimen of 6 or 12 milligrams per kilogram per hour, remimazolam provided equally efficient and safe sedation. Another study comparing remimazolam with propofol suggested better hemodynamic stability and similar hypnotic efficacy in high-risk patients undergoing major cardiac surgery. And this is a group of folks you don't want to fool around with. No, not at all. Very fragile. You know, and it's it really is interesting to note that uh, when Remy Mazlam was used comparative to propofol, that there was again a reduced need for things like norepinephrine compared to the you know usual propofol sevoflurane anesthesia. However, to gain widespread use, additional clinical studies really need to be done to really look at things like post-operative nausea and vomiting, post-op delirium or cognitive dysfunction, 
Um, you know, even pharmacological interactions with various forms of opioid analgesics as it starts to garner, you know, a bigger hold in clinical practice. You hit the nail on the head there, Gary. So when we are considering um, looking at those doses in administration for general anesthesia, you know, the approved licensed prescribing information specifies an initial dose of 6 or 12 milligrams per kilogram for per hour for induction, and you follow that with a milligram per kilogram per hour for maintenance infusions. Now, this infusion maintenance rate should be adjusted, as we always do, on the patient's general condition and response uh, to anesthesia and sedation level. So we got to keep an eye on things. Yeah, and you know, it's worth noting that to date, there have been no published clinical trials of bolus administration of remimazolam to induce anesthesia. Therefore, Bolus administration is not currently recommended for general anesthesia, but, you know, future trials as we start to see a lot more studies with this stuff, you know, it'll probably establish its role for more practical administration methods. Hey, so in conclusion, uh, Remy uh, Maslam uh, showcases its versatility for both procedural sedation and general anesthesia. And as Gary said, well, you know, when we're first getting used to using these new medications, uh, caution is always appropriate uh, because we do want to uh, establish that balance of both efficacy and safety. Now, ongoing research and clinical studies are going to undoubtedly provide us with more insights into its optimal use and further solidify its place in the realm of anesthetics. And so, but again, as always, as Gary said, in the beginning, when you're using a new medication for the first few times, um, it's always good to be cautious and err on the side of safety. Yeah, absolutely, Terry. You know, in the evolving landscape of anesthetic options, only continues to benefit our patients. Uh, you know, and CRNAs alike. Uh, Remy Maslam's unique characteristics contribute to this positive trajectory in, in anesthesia care. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to Terry, you know, we infrequently, thank God, uh, those that are in acute facilities, we get pulled, uh, to consult in the ICUs. Maybe, maybe kind of shift a little bit and talk a little bit about that because sometimes a CRNA can be a shining star in the ICU also. Well, there's no doubt that during COVID, we really got a chance to put the, the good housekeeping stamp of approval <laughs> on the, all the things that CRNAs bring to the, bring to the clinical area. But again, uh, when we think about the potential use of Remy Maslam for intensive care unit sedation, you have to consider the unique needs of critically ill patients. Since ICU patients often suffer from essential organ failure, uh, having a short-acting agent with metabolism independent of the liver or kidney becomes crucial. And in theory, Remy Maslam seems to uh, offer some promise for long-term sedation in the ICU uh, due to its favorable properties, including organ-independent metabolism, minimal accumulation of the drug, and the availability of reverse drug. And we can't overlook the fact that, you know, there are some real problems with uh, acid-base balance with continuous mm -hmm. long-term infusions of propofol and its ability to, uh, you know, cause trouble uh, at a metabolic level. Absolutely, Terry. You know, and these characteristics make Remy Maslam, you know, a pretty promising candidate worth exploring in the ICU for sedation uh, reasons. However, it is important to note that currently there's no published clinical evidence on its utility uh, of using Remy Maslam in, for various types of ICU sedation. So um, I do know that there are a couple of trials that are, that are ongoing at the moment. Uh, I'm not going to get into the numbers, but the aim is really to investigate 
Is there feasibility in long-term sedation with remimazolam in critically ill patients? And these are important trials that you talked about, Gary, because the results of these trials are going to provide us with the clinical insights, the valuable insights into the potential role of remimazolam improving sedation practices in ICU settings for those critically ill patients. Now, let's let's shift our focus a little bit to another interesting aspect of remimazolam, the ability of clinicians to reverse its sedative effects using our old buddy flumazenil. Ooh, flumazenil. <laughs> oh, baby. Yeah. It's that antagonist of the positive allosteric modulator effects of benzodiazepines. It reverses that hypnotic effect um, for remimazolam as well as all the other benzodiazepines. And it does uh, have that significant compared to several other hypnotics, including propofol, for which reversal is typically not possible. Yeah, with propofol, you got to rely on redistribution to get you out of yep. trouble. Yeah, but uh, that's nice that the flumazenil is out there for us to reverse the sedative effects of uh, remimazolam. Um, and again, uh, reversal of uh, remimazolam by flumazenil has been well documented in, in previous studies. You know, so for instance, after successive sedation with IV remimazolam in volunteers undergoing col vol under volunteers undergoing col volunteering for colonoscopies, <laughs> I think we have to. I, does Count, the IRB know about this? <laughs> Count me out. Okay. <laughs> Help me out. So, but but yet we digress. So, but seriously, after successive sedation with IV remimazolam in volunteers undergoing colonoscopy, the time until subjects were fully awake was significantly shorter with remimazolam uh, compared to the placebo group. Yeah, you know, and it's worth, you know, noting that recommended dosing and administration of flumazenil, since we're on the topic, for reversing the hypnotic effects of, of benzodiazepines in general, that initial dose is 0.2 milligrams that is slowly injected over 15 seconds to avoid adverse effects, one of those being seizures. You know, if the desired level of consciousness is not achieved after 60 seconds, second dose of flumazenil uh, at 0.2 can be given, and a maximum total dose of a milligram. Repeated doses may be administered if you need them, but you need to really carefully monitor those patients. You know, and it's really important for us to keep in mind, for all clinicians to keep in mind, that the mechanism of action of flumazenil against benzodiazepines is based on competitive antagonism. And flumazenil has a pretty short terminal half-life of, you know, maybe 40 to 80 minutes. And so, therefore, patients should be monitored for resedation, uh, respiratory depression, and other effects as the plasma flumazenil concentration declines. Yeah, Terry, and routine administration of flumazenil to reverse the remimazolam-induced sedation is really not recommended due to the likelihood of rebound sedation. So clinicians really need to weigh the benefit versus the risk, considering, uh, you know, that patient-specific circumstances of what you're trying to achieve. So as we draw this to a close, uh, this part of the discussion, just remember that the potential use of remimazolam in the ICU setting opens up 
all kinds of new avenues for optimizing sedation in critically ill patients. And ongoing trials are going to contribute to our understanding and the availability of a reversal agent like flumazenil adds just another extra layer of flexibility and safety to the use of this new innovative drug, remimazolam. Yeah, well said, Terry. You know, the evolving landscape of sedation practice in critical care really reflects continuous efforts to enhance patient outcomes, and that Remy Maslam's unique characteristics make it a really intriguing candidate for further exploration. You know, and, and I think CRNAs, when you get called to the ICU of, of doing various, maybe a procedure uh, and whatnot, this is one of those things you have in your back pocket that uh, you may actually uh, help revolutionize what you're doing up there in the ICUs. Hey, you know, you're exactly right, Gary. Let's explore the real-world applications of Remy Maslam through some of the various case reports that have emerged since its introduction into the market. You know, and these case reports provide us some insights into the diverse scenarios where Remy Maslam has been used and been effective. Absolutely, Terry. You know, and, and you know, I think, you know, the next portion of this discussion is really going to help show and highlight some unique uses and and applications and and one of those being as you know terry i i like to do a fair amount of neuroanesthesia and uh remy maslam has actually been used in awake craniotomies a procedure for you know particular interest at least for me uh you know and in some case reports like the one that was done by yoshida et al in 2021 highlighted the use of remy maslam in in awake craniotomies where they incorporated it with the planned use of flumazenil to reduce the sedation during the procedure, you know, and I, I don't, those of you that have done awake craniotomies, I think that you could time this to where you don't have to worry about reversing it. Um, the neurosurgeons are not that fast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they're a special group of they doctors Gary. you know that there's nothing like a neurosurgeon <laughs> good folks gay you gotta have them you gotta have them yeah um, you know what gary it's important for us to note that not all observations are unequivocally positive takabana and others in 2021 raised some real concerns about the effectiveness of remy mazalam for craniotomy based on their observations with two subjects they highlighted issues such as increased sputum production compared to propofol, uh, potential surgical difficulties due to the higher intracranial pressure, and a little bit of agitation observed upon flumazenil reversal. So this emphasizes the need for further study to better understand the risk-benefit balance in the context of craniotomy. Yeah, you know, moving beyond craniotomies, case reports have actually been documented with successful use of Remy Maslam in a whole range of actual surgical settings, including spine surgery with motor evoke potential monitoring, thyroid surgery with neuromonitoring, and cardiac surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass. Well, that's the whole spectrum. Now, these case reports showcase the versatility of Remy Maslam in different surgical procedures, as you've said, and it indicates its potential applicability across a wide range of medical interventions. Yeah, you know, and the successful use of Remy Maslam in high-risk patients, as we've said earlier, is highlighted in case reports uh, throughout the literature. And that includes scenarios such as endoscopic retrograde, coleoangiopancreatography. Or as we love to say, ERCPs. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mouthful to try to actually yeah, say. Yeah, it is. That's something. Wow. Uh, or even try to spell it, because I'm not even going to try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what patients, you know, they have impaired respiratory function due to you know, myotonic dystrophy or, you know, mitral clip implantations in patients with 
advanced heart failure or cochlear implants in patients with mitochondrial myopathies. Well, those mitochondrial diseases are a mind boggler, mm. I'll tell you. Oh, yes. Now, for the procedural sedation setting, Hansen and Thompson in 2021 reported that sedation with Remy Maslam resulted in a lower insult to neuropsychiatric function in geriatric patients undergoing a variety of procedures compared to existing agents. And, you know, more and more of our patients are getting, getting old. I mean, we have an aging population. We can't be too careful. Absolutely. Yeah. POCD is, is, is real. Uh, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to note, there's also been, you know, observations of resedation after flumazenil reversal in some cases. So that could be attributed to residual Remy Maslam or metabolite uh, CNS 7054 buildup to levels that can actually activate the GABA A receptor. So the possibility of resedation emphasizes the importance of careful monitoring after reversing this agent. Now, you know, the risk is there and just know that when you're using it and be observant for it. Yeah. And I think in a week or two, we're going to talk a little bit about postoperative cognitive decline and yeah. uh, delirium. So <clears throat> stay tuned, folks. That's coming up. Absolutely. Yeah, it is coming. So, you know, there have been reports of the precipitation of Remy Maslam and Ringer solution. We we talked a little bit earlier about the importance of being careful when you reconstitute this lipophilized drug uh, for clinical use. So this really highlights the importance of proper handling and the administration practices to avoid these kinds of complications. Yeah, you know, and there is a single case report out there of anaphylaxis resulting from the administration of Remy Maslam. And, you know, it is published uh, and it does underline the importance of being vigilant about potential adverse reactions that we can see with the drug. Yeah, and you always have to, you know, be on the alert for hypersensitivity and allergic reactions. And, you know, these kinds of case reports, which are so important, do offer valuable insights into the practical applications and challenges associated with the use of Remy Maslam. And as more of these cases emerge, you know, we can expect to have a richer understanding of its utility in diverse clinical scenarios and maybe even some of its drawbacks. Yeah, you know, and I think it's important to kind of extend a little bit more on the importance of the safety information or profiles of Remy Maslam, and, and it should only be administered by personnel that are trained in procedural sedation and continuous monitoring of vital signs, and it's crucial during both sedation and recovery periods. So the risk of associated with concomitant use of opioid analgesics or other Sedative hypnotic should be carefully considered and patients should be continuously monitored for things like the depth of sedation as well as respiratory depression. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right, Gary. And we were even talking today in class about uh, the synergy of drugs like benzodiazepines absolutely. and opioids when you put them together. And uh, so, you know, we can't overlook that. These safety considerations are absolutely paramount to making sure that our patients uh, have enjoy well-being uh, when they're undergoing uh, procedures that involve the use of Remy Maslam. And, you know, we're going to continue to gather more clinical experiences and data in the landscape of this sedation practice is going to evolve as time goes on. Yeah, absolutely, Terry. You know, the journey of Remy Maslam in clinical practice is it's truly an ongoing exploration. And these case reports do help to significantly enhance our understanding and the utilization of Remy Maslam in the appropriate places in real world applications. 
You know, and that includes, you know, being aware of not just the the benefits of using Remy Maslin, but some of the critical aspects around the use of this drug, including the contraindications, some some safety considerations, and even more information about specific patient populations. Yeah, you know, and it's important to note that Remy Maslin is contraindicated in patients with a history of severe hypersensitivity reactions to Dextran 40 or products that do contain dextran-40. So that highlights the necessity of careful patient screening to ensure their safety. You know, and again, it, it's worth repeating that when it comes to administering Remy-Maslam, it's critical to have well-trained personnel on hand and only individuals trained in procedural sedation and are not involved in the procedure itself should administer Remy-Maslam. So just like any moderate or deep sedation procedure, the operator and the sedation uh, personnel should be separate. Uh, so you got to be skilled in detecting and managing potential complications such as airway obstructions, hypoventilation, and even apnea. So resuscitative drugs and appropriate equipment for ventilation, masks and, and ambu bags should be readily available during the administration of Remy Maslam. So if you need to step in and save the day, you're ready to do that. Yeah, absolutely. This is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists. I'm inviting you to attend the 15th World Congress for Nurse Anesthetists, May 7th through 9th, 2026, in Brisbane, Australia. I promise you that you will love meeting nurse anesthetists from around the world, attending the multitude of Congress sessions, and exploring the many unique experiences that Brisbane has to offer. Hold a koala bear, feed kangaroos directly from your hand, climb Story Bridge, one of the only three climbing bridges in the world, or travel to snorkel the Great Barrier Reef. This is one Congress you do not want to miss. Cheers! Well, let's talk about another interesting application, and that's in the context of pregnancy. Neonates born to mothers using benzodiazepines late in pregnancy may experience symptoms of sedation and or withdrawal. And we do remember that we don't give this in the first trimester, right, uh, benzodiazepines, because uh, we can have some major birth defects. So careful monitoring in neonates exposed to Remy Maslam during pregnancy or labor is imperative. Yeah, and even the next step when we talk about its pediatric use, it's important to note that the safety and effectiveness of Remy Maslam in pediatric patients has not been established. So uh, Remy Maslam shouldn't be given to kids um, and even young, handsome adults like Gary and I oh, hey. who are under 18 years of age. <laughs> well, you know, let's move on to geriatric use. <laughs> well, speaking of geriatric uses, Gary and Terry unleashed. Well, there you go. Well, now that th we'll have you know, for those of us that are geriatric, while there's no overall difference in safety or effectiveness um, between older and younger subjects, there is the potential for greater sensitivity in some older individuals. Not all, but administering supplemental doses with Remy Maslam, again, getting back to titration and closely monitoring them for cardiorespiratory complications, is something that is a prudent recommendation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, those folks that have a little bit of uh, severe hepatic impairment, you know, you got to, the dose of your Remy Maslam should be carefully titrated to effect, as you, we do with all medications. But depending on that patient's overall status, 
you know, lower frequency of supplemental doses may be needed, you know, slow it down just a little bit. And all patients should be monitored for sedation related cardiorespiratory complications, right, Garrett? Absolutely, Terry. You know, a nuanced understanding of, of these considerations is crucial for healthcare providers, specifically nurse anesthetists, as they navigate that landscape of sedation, whether it's in the OR or out of the OR, but certainly, uh, you know, with the use of any new agent, if that will, like Remy Maslam. So we're going to find out more and more, uh, folks, about the issues of things like tolerance and dependence. You know, and those are always a concern with benzodiazepines. And it seems Remy Maslam is not exempt from some of these liabilities. No surprise, really. The short duration of effect and the requirement for intravenous administration might mitigate some of these issues to a certain extent. Uh, so studies like the one by Io et al. observed tolerance to remimazolam over a 28-day dosing period in pigs. Wow. Hmm. Poor pigs. They really get beat up, don't they? All the but time. anyway, it was less effective than that seen with midazolam. Indeed, Terry. You know, it's fascinating oh. to see how these unique characteristics of remimazolam, such as its short duration of action, play a role in influencing its tolerability. You know, in cases of existing tolerance to benzodiazepines, the set of effects of remimazolam may actually be reduced. So as seen in patients with long-term benzodiazepine use, uh, equivalents to things like 10 to 20 milligrams of diazepam per day. Uh, Pharmacological interactions. You know, the synergistic effect of benzodiazepines with opioid analgesics has been well-established uh, you know, and it, and it is beneficial in procedural sedation and anesthesia or general anesthesia. So this synergy holds true with Remy Maslam, as confirmed by a range of studies that are out there. Interestingly, though, Remy Maslam is believed to have a lower potential for pharmacokinetic drug interactions than things like its sister or brother compound, midazolam, which is primarily metabolized, as we've said earlier, by cytochrome P453A4. Uh, However, it is essential to consider the major metabolizing enzyme of remimazolam, or CES1, can be inhibited by naturally occurring agents such as flavonoids and fatty acids. Wow. Yeah. Hey, and don't don't forget about alcohol, Gary. Oh. You know it inhibits uh, CES1 uh, enzymes as well, and has been shown to increase exposure uh, to remimazolam. So this emphasizes the importance of considering potential drug interactions, even with substances that you know might be perceived as be perceived as being pretty common. Yeah, you know, let's touch a little bit more on that safety concern. Uh, and future directions with respect to that. You know, adverse reactions associated with remimazolam during procedural sedations or general anesthetic settings have been well documented also in the literature. And these include things like blood pressure changes, heart rate changes, we've said this earlier, nausea and vomiting, headaches, somnolence, which I think that's kind of what you're trying to achieve. Isn't um, that right? I think so. <laughs> yeah. Hypoxia, if they're Sleepy. not breathing. Yeah. And importantly, cardiac electrophysiology studies indicated that cardiac repolarization is not prolonged with remimazolam. Well, that's good. So no QT interval prolongation. Nice. That's pretty cool. So let's compare that with propofol a little bit. You know, and Remy's got a little, Remy Maslam's got a little better safety profile. 
Um, less incidence of hypotension, maybe less requirement for bradycardia treatment and management, and hey, no pain on injection. However, propofol was less likely to cause postoperative nausea and vomiting. Something to, you know, think about. Yeah, you know, Terry, and alluding a little bit earlier to the issue of drug abuse and potential misuse, is it's always a concern with any anesthetic agent that we have available to us. Um, but, you know, a study investigating the abuse potential of Remy Maslam actually demonstrated that it has a comparable or maybe a slightly lower abuse potential than midazolam. So, you know, which is shown for its lower potential IV abuse, just it's like, it's like when we talk people that we, you know, we had our four or five sessions on, on diversion and, and opioids. I'm not sure why somebody would want to divert you know, Remy fentanyl, because it's so short acting. So this would kind of fall in that same suit, I would think. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, pretty interesting characteristic. So, you know, it's noteworthy to uh, point out the solubility of Remy Maslam, which decreases at pH is greater than 4.0. So it's, you need some acidity going on there. Mm. So the package insert instructions specify that it should not be dissolved in alkaline solutions. So, yeah, think about that. you got to avoid things like Ringer's lactate. Uh, that shouldn't be used as a solvent because it does not dissolve completely. And you don't like to have a precipitate, and that's what can happen when you mix Remy Maslam with uh, Ringer's lactate. So this emphasizes, again, the importance of adhering to proper administration guidelines following the directions. To <laughs> oh, avoid... what? I know, I know. I never read the directions. Yeah, well... <laughs> There's a lot of those kinds of folks out there. But anyway, we have to read the directions and follow them to avoid oh, complications. We really do. Okay, fine. You know, <laughs> uh, also ongoing trials, and, and this, is, this is a class of patients that we always have concern about, and that's the pediatric patients. Uh, there are studies underway looking at its safety profile and effectiveness in the pediatric population. So uh, it's not well established yet, but, you know, I mean, how... We're, we're giving our pediatric patients uh, grape juice with, with uh, midazolam. I'm sure this one won't be much different. Yeah, they should try a little Pinot Noir. That's <laughs> That would potentiate, if you yes. will, maybe even synergistically, yes. uh, the effects of midazolam. So, yeah, you got to be careful with kids, uh, you know, and, and eventually, you know, it's, there's going to be a track record that we can fall back on. And so that really is a crucial point, Gary. Until we have more data, Remy Maslam for both general anesthesia and sedation really shouldn't be um, used in the pediatric arena. So it's going to be interesting to see how the landscape evolves, though as more research is conducted and, and the data comes in with this regard to pediatric patients. Yeah, you know, I think this this field of sedation, what Remy Maslam research is undoubtedly going to help pave insights, you know, into the safety efficacy as well as potential expanded applications of Remy Maslam as we start to move forward. You know, and we're going to eventually get a, a better and more com comprehensive picture or characterization of Remy Maslam as a hypnotic. So we're still in the early stages. And despite, you know, some really promising results from volunteer studies and, and real honest-to-goodness clinical trials, uh, you know, the data is still coming in. So, you know, while Remy Maslam has been shown to have good safety and efficacy in procedural sedation and induction and maintenance of general anesthesia, there is a call for careful introduction into clinical practice to ensure patient safety. We'll always have to be cautious as, as new drugs come to, to the clinical uh, arena. So future trials are essential 
potential to delve into the various aspects, including the pharmacological interactions with other uh, anesthetic drugs, new formulations, safety profiles in special populations, EEE changes, which are, are really a fascinating area of study, bolus administration for induction, post-operative nausea and vomiting, post-operative cognitive impairment, um, and again, uh, really Im important to do post-market cost-benefit analysis because, as you know, we've seen with drugs like Sugamidex, you know, uh, acquisition cost is not the whole story because it can save you some money on the back end. So we're going to find out more about where Remy Maslam fits in there. Absolutely. You know, and I, I just thought about a good study. Um, let's maybe talk briefly about Terry, and that was the... Uh, the recent randomized clinical trials by Zhang et al., I think it was 2021 or 2022, where they actually compared the sedative uh, efficacy and safety of Remy-Maslam and Propofol, which I know we've talked about a lot, but this is in a specific patient population of obstructive sleep apnea or hypopnea syndrome, also known as OSAHS, undergoing drug-induced sleep endoscopy, or DICE, D-I-S-E. Uh, you know, these findings were very intriguing, Terry. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, the, there were three main findings that we should focus on. First of all, Remy Maslam reduced the incidence of hypoxemia compared to propofol. Not really a big surprise. Second, the sedative efficacy of Remy Maslam was comparable to propofol for these drug-induced sleep endoscopy procedures. And third, Remy Maslam demonstrated a pretty high safety profile with greater hemodynamic stability and a lower incidence of events of interest, including things like bradycardia and decreased respiratory rate, which obviously we want to avoid and, and can, can sometimes can be a problem with propofol. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in the incidence of hypoxemia in these patient populations, that you've kind of outlined are, are definitely a critical concern given their elevated risk for cardiac as well as cerebral hypoxemic injury. So the study showed that Remy Maslam actually significantly reduced the incidence of hypoxemia compared to propofol itself. So that can attribute to the fact that Remy Maslam, again, unlike propofol, doesn't significantly depress the hypoxic ventilatory response during sedation. So that's another good little nugget that Remy Maslam offers. Yeah. And so you tie that with uh, Remy Maslam providing superior hemodynamic stability and a lower incidence of these kind of interesting events, uh, such as the bradycardia and decreased respiratory rate. Uh, it really is a strong endorsement of the medication. So this aligns with Remy Maslam's pharmacological characteristic of minimal circulatory depression. And it's interesting to note that even with the unique challenges presented by this population of OSAAH patients, Remy Maslam showcased its safety and efficacy one more time. Indeed, Terry, you know, the journey of Remy Maslam for discovery to widespread clinical use is constantly evolving. I'm watching it in our own clinical practice. You know, and with each study, we get closer to unlocking the full potential of Remy Maslam, uh, you know, while ensuring, uh, as we've said, and we never want to overlook this, the patient safety profile, which always remains at the forefront of our sort of mindset as we're tweaking our uh, art of anesthesia, if you will. Hey, so let's talk about a really fascinating case that was presented by Nakagawa and others where Remy Maslam was employed for thyroid surgery. Now, this patient was a 72-year-old woman with an enlarged thyroid gland 
undergoing a partial thyroidectomy. And of course, we always have to be aware of airway compromise after thyroidectomies. Mm. That can be pretty yeah. scary. So what makes this case particularly interesting is the strategic use of Remy Mazlam for extubation under mild sedation with complete arousal after flumazenil administration. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, and the induction process involved an in administration of Remy Mazlam, Rocuronium, and Remy Fentanyl for rapid induction. And that was followed, obviously, by intubation. And then intravenous Remy Mazlam, as well as Remy Fentanyl, were used to maintain the anesthetic in this case. What's noteworthy is that the actual surgery was completed without the need, the need of antagonist of the muscle relaxant Sugamidex, a common requirement for similar procedures. Now, I'll just pause there for a minute. That was in the case study. I don't know that I would not give a reversal agent um, for neuromuscular. I don't know about you, Terry, but if I give a muscle relaxant, I don't care if it's four or five hours later, they're getting Sugamidex. Um, yeah. I want to make sure they're fully reversed. Darn right. And we did a whole podcast on uh, the new standards yeah. and guidelines for for uh, monitoring and antagonism of neuromuscular blockade. So let's not overlook that. That's really important. We don't want any patients that are going to be yeah. weak in the PACU because of residual neuromuscular blockade. But it was a pretty interesting uh, case report, uh, even though they uh, all, you know avoided the use of Sugamidex. But again, it does suggest that the benefits of uh, Remy Maslam extend to some, some muscle relaxant effects, uh, which might be a little different than other traditional uh, sedative agents. So the uh, entire operation in this report took only about 40 minutes, really not much in the way of blood loss, minimal blood loss. And postoperatively, the patient was successfully extubated after receiving Sugamidex and underwent further evaluation for spontaneous respiration and compliance. Ah, but the plot thickens, Terry. Yeah, it does. Thick plots. <laughs> there That's were some plot. complications in this case study yeah. that Ooh. did happen post-extubation. Yeah. yeah. The patient did, despite being fully aroused, uh, let's just say awoken or awaken, confirming the absence of recurrent laryngeal nerve policy, they did have some neck swelling, uh, which actually then indicated potential post-operative hemorrhage. And so there was a decision that was made in this case uh, that they would go back in and reoperate. And so in this scenario, propofol was chosen for the reinduction agent. You know, and I've had I've had experiences with those patients that have those uh, post-operative thyroidectomy hemorrhages. And boy, I'll tell you what, that'll tighten your scrubs up a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, 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 <laughs> but anyway, the second induction involved propofol, fentanyl, and rock. Uh, leading to a successful intubation, so that's good. Interestingly, the patient didn't have any recollection of the second intubation during an interview the day after their procedure. <laughs> Thank Ooh, God. baby, Ooh, that's good. <laughs> so this really underscores the amnestic effects of Remy Mazlam, similar to my old friend Midazlam, which seems to have played a, a you know a prominent role in alleviating the psychological burden associated with the reoperation. That's pretty scary to have to take somebody back to the uh. OR for a thyroid bleed. I know that. Oh, absolutely. Neck hematomas, not good. You know, and so, you know, to our listeners, you know, what this case really highlights is the importance of extubation on Remy midazolam sedation to minimize the risk of post-operative hemorrhage. You know, subsequent arousal with the flumazenil allowed the confirmation of, you know, that the recurrent laryngeal nerves were intact, although it didn't prevent active post-operative hemorrhage due to the inadequate 
hemostasis. And so that could probably happen any any type of anesthetic you're doing. But, you know, when we're trying to stretch the limits on, a, on an agent like this, um, you still have to be observant and watching the patient safety profile. Yeah, you got to be careful. Hey, it's worth noting that the pharmacokinetics of remimazolam, uh, including its rapid hydrolysis in the liver, mainly by carboxylesterase, has an elimination halftime of only about 48 or 49 minutes. So this rapid metabolism ensures a quick reversal of effects when we have to antagonize it with a drug like flumazenil. Yeah, absolutely, Terry. And, you know, and the study also emphasized that careful use of flumazenil, right? And we've talked about this over and over. While it is a valuable tool for arousal control after extubation, it does require meticulous monitoring for respiratory function as well as upper respiratory or upper airway obstruction. So withdrawal symptoms, potential interactions with other medications need to be considered uh, with this drug. Absolutely. So, you know, we're looking at the choice of remimazolam during thyroid surgery where neurostimulation is crucial for monitoring recurrent laryngeal nerve palsies. So that's noteworthy. And the case suggests that remimazolam may have fewer muscle relaxant effects than inhaled anesthetics, minimizing the need for muscle relaxant antagonism. And let's not forget, Terry, the psychological impact on the patient. Remimazolam amnestic effects as seen in this case, might contribute positively to the patient experience. But what we need also consider that unexpected event like reintubation occurs, uh, you know, the agent does have a role to help mitigate some of the uh, memory of, of that experience. Yeah, so there's no doubt, Gary, you know, this case demonstrates the in intricate considerations in anesthesia management during thyroid surgery. So Remy-Maslam, with its unique properties, you know, proves to be a valuable asset, and ongoing research will likely uh, reveal more insights into its applications across diverse surgical procedures. Absolutely, Terry. And, and you know, I know there's another article that you were discussing earlier with me. Let's maybe jump into that one. I think it's an interesting... Uh, demonstration of the versatility of remimazolam and, and other applications that it can have. Yeah, so um, this case involves a challenging situation where the patient experienced cardiac tamponade, boy, that's scary, due to a mm. pigtail catheter penetrating the left ventricle during pericardiosynthesis, you know, at a different hospital. <sighs> wow, crazy scary stuff. So the patient with a medical history of atrial fibrillation and heart failure was urgently transferred to their hospital for emergency surgery. And upon arrival to the emergency room, the patient actually presented with dyspnea and chest pain, but their vital signs were relatively stable. So the decision to proceed with the emergency surgery was made. Uh, considering the severity of the hemopericardium and the hemothorax, the unique aspect here is the consideration of cardiopulmonary bypass, highlighting the complexity of the case in itself. You know, well, yeah. So the plan was to induce with anesthesia using Remy Maslam, given the unstable, spontaneously uh, spontaneous breathing due to massive hemothorax and the need for one lung ventilation during surgery. So no pre medications were administered, and the monitoring included various parameters like non invasive blood pressure, ECG, pulse oximetry, and patient state index or cerebral oximetry, as well as other modalities, your hemodynamic uh, monitors and stuff, uh, or non-invasive. 
So this, this this was pretty challenging. This was not a beginner case, right? For no. first year sRNA, uh, things were pretty <laughs> challenging during the induction. So they they used a little bit of Remy Mazalam. It was given, and the patient's blood pressure and the heart rate suddenly declined, indicating cardiogenic shock. Ooh, baby, that's it. That'll that'll make you sweat. So epinephrine was promptly injected to stabilize vital signs. So that's good. And the decision to proceed with intubation using a double lumen tube was made, emphasizing the need for meticulous care in managing this critical situation. Boy, that's a that's a tough one. Oh man. Well, you know, and then the surgical team actually opted for a left anterior thoracotomy uh, to approach the lesion that they were trying to get at. And that operation involved decompression and removal of the pigtail catheter um, that was in the ventricle, right? suturing of the cardiac opening, and then evacuating the pericardial and pleural hematomas. You know, and the use of vasopressors and inotrope is typically necessary to maintain hemodynamic stability for surgeries like this. Oh boy, and this case really does emphasize the importance of maintaining hemodynamic stability until you get that pericardium depressed and let that heart fill back up. <laughs> oh, oh man, oh man. So the use of Remy Maslam for induction and maintenance raises some interesting questions. Now, Remy Maslam, a benzodiazepine drug developed based on the molecular structure of midazolam, offers hemodynamic stability similar to midazolam, but with a shorter context-sensitive halftime, which we've talked about a little bit. Yeah, indeed, Terry. You know, the initial plan was to perform pericardial ostomy under spontaneous breathing, but the need for one lung ventilation altered that approach. So the administration of remimazlam at six milligrams per kilo per hour for induction led to severe hypotension and bradycardia, which required prompt intervention with our good old friend epinephrine. Yeah. And, you know, the reasons why they encountered that hemodynamic instability, you know, there was a number of factors that played into that. Certainly, while the effects of Remy Maslam, including potential attenuation of the compensatory response to cardiac tamponade, should be considered, you know, other factors which can't be overlooked were positive pressure ventilation, uh, the patient's underlying medical conditions, which included, you know, a history of heart failure and atrial fibrillation. So, all of those things came into play in making this a really tough case with some severe hemodynamic instability. Yeah, and it's interesting to note, Terry, that, you know, ketamine's often used in hemodynamically unstable patients due to its sympathomimetic effects. However, in this case, Remy Maslam was chosen, and its effects on the sympathetic nervous system still remain unclear, uh, you know, and this just highlights that further research is needed to really understand uh, you know, the aspects and the profile of Remy Maslam and its applications in, in certainly in these types of cases. Yeah. And, you know, ketamine is is not necessarily a panacea either, because we do know that in mm. patients that have, um, for lack of a better term, cardiovascular exhaustion, uh, their sympathetic nervous system, you can unmask the cardiodepressant effects that are associated with the use of that drug. So again, the complexities of managing cardiac tamponade under anesthesia really do underscore the need for careful drug selection and constant vigilance and monitoring. Now, the use of Remy Maslam in such a, a critical situation scenario prompts us to explore its unique properties and potential applications in other various clinical contexts. You know, and as we navigate through challenging cases like this, Terry, our commitment to refining anesthesia practice and ensuring patient safety remains paramount, which we've hopefully nailed this over and over throughout this topic. 
Uh, but Re- Remy Maslam's role in this case raises intriguing questions and points toward, you know, the ongoing evolution of anesthetic strategies and approaches um, as we apply these agents across uh, the continuum of anesthesia care. Yeah, and let's say we're going to shift our focus for just a second, Gary, to another intriguing aspect of Remy Maslam in cardiovascular anesthesia. And that is in a study by Hirata. Remy Maslam, you know, a novel benzodiazepine, certainly has gained popularity in Japan for general anesthesia since 2020. Now, the initial clinical trials demonstrated its less cardiodepressant effects compared to propofol, which makes it a safe option for patients with some cardiovascular complications and vulnerable to unstable hemodynamics after induction with uh, for a general anesthetic. That's interesting or pretty fascinating, Terry. Uh, you know, it is crucial to note, while clinical trials for general anesthesia using Remy-Mazolam didn't initially include cardiovascular surgical cases. So, these recent studies really highlight, you know, its emerging efficacy in cardiovascular surgery, which I would never have thought of. But, you know, yeah. one notable concern in, in cardiac surgery is postoperative delirium, right? And so a significant yeah. complication, which we're going to have a podcast on that one, uh, but it certainly is real in uh, post-cardiac surgery that uh, is associated with impaired cognition as well as other adverse outcomes. Yeah, you know, postoperative delirium really does open up a whole Pandora's box of problems. But generally speaking, uh, postoperative delirium is a reversible state uh, that's characterized by, you know, impaired cognition, uh, inattention, altered levels of consciousness, and disturbance of memory, orientation, and perception. And in cardiac patients, the subjective experiences that have been explored, we'll delve into that in a little bit uh, next week or so. But benzodiazepines, including Remy-Maslam, are considered psychotropic medications, and there may be some concerns about postoperative delirium after general anesthesia with Remy-Maslam as well as other benzodiazepines. Yeah, you know, in a prospective observational study, the association between Remy-Maslam and post-operative delirium in older adults undergoing elective cardiovascular surgery uh, is investigated and it is in the literature. Interestingly, the study found, uh, or certainly one of the ones that I read, uh, that the incidence of post-operative delirium when you use the Remy-Maslam was comparable to that in the control group using other anesthetic agents. So this really does, you know, challenge the notion that Remy Maslam is not the coup de grace, um, and it is associated uh, with postoperative delirium. Were you speaking Southern there, Gary? Oh, I could have been. Coup, coup de grace, wow. <laughs> so, gosh, you're such a sophisticated, wow. Uh, hey, but another study focused on patients going uh, undergoing transcatheter aortic valve implantation, or TAVI, under general anesthesia. Now, the incidence of postoperative delirium within three days after TAVI was significantly lower in the Remy-Maslam group compared to propofol, uh, which makes sense. Now, this suggests that Remy-Maslam might play a role in reducing the occurrence of postoperative delirium in specific cardiovascular procedures. That'd be good. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, and especially in less uh, invasive cardiovascular surgeries like TAVI that you mentioned, as well as MitroClip uh, for mitral valve regurgitation. Early recovery, neurological assessment is is uh, crucial. Remy-Maslam, along with antagonization with flumazenil, might actually offer a strategy for preventing postoperative delirium, particularly in the vulnerable elderly patient population 
um, that are experiencing neurocognitive decline, like myself. And we hinted at this a little bit earlier, but let's let's talk for just a minute about the cardiodepressant uh, effects, uh, Gary. And now studies that consistently demonstrated less cardiodepressant effects uh, of remimazolam compared to other anesthetic agents. Uh, Lou and his colleagues investigated its effects during anesthesia induction in cardiac surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass and revealed a significantly lower hemodynamic changes and a lower incidence of hypotension when compared to uh, propofol, which is kind of the mainstay. Yeah, and that reminds me of another study by Nam and colleagues that explored the effects of remimazolam and desflurane during cardiac ablation for atrial fibrillation. And the remimazolam group exhibited a significantly lower overall incidence of vasoactive agent use compared to the desflurane group. So that does emphasize you know, the potential advantages of remimazolam in maintaining hemodynamic stability. Yeah. And so this really underscores uh, the, the importance of doing additional research so that we can get all the data uh, on available to us. Now, the optimal dose and methods of administration of remimazolam during cardiac surgery are still under investigation, uh, and that's ongoing. So the doses of opioids administered with remimazolam may also influence the high hemodynamic changes that are observed, requiring a little bit more nuanced understanding of that interplay between opioids and remimazolam. Yeah, and you know, while studies show promising results, we do have to consider the broader context of cardioprotective effects, especially in cardiac surgery. So, you know, volatile anesthetics have demonstrated cardioprotective effects, and the question arises, should we prioritize volatile anesthesia with cardioprotective effects or remimazolam anesthesia with less cardiodepressant effects, followed by antagonism with Flumazenil. Yeah, it's just a question. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, though. Uh, and anyway, I think uh, there's some data out there that suggests that even opioids probably uh, contribute to, you know, preconditioning and protective effects of that. So, wow, that's going to be interesting. So future studies, they need to dig deeper into that question, examining outcomes after cardiac surgery to determine the optimal approach. You know, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat, and we want to we want to have the best way. So the the challenge lies in balancing the cardioprotection and maintaining hemodynamic stability while minimizing complications like postoperative delirium. So as we explore these complexities, you know, it's evident the landscape of cardiovascular anesthesia continues to evolve like most any other subspecialties. Remy-Maslam does bring some new possibilities and, you know, we continue to unravel, unravel its potential. You know, our commitment to refining anesthesia practice it remains unwavering, and this podcast is premier to be able to allow you to do that. <laughs> wow. Gosh, I feel, almost feel important there for a minute. Anyway, hey, but you know what? You know, cardiovascular anesthesia is, you know, really complex and challenging, and the evolving landscape of cardiovascular anesthesia offers, you know, exciting new prospects, and Remy Maslam seems to be a promising player in this field. Now, as we navigate through the intricacies of balancing cardioprotection and hemodynamic stability, there's a lot to uncover about the optimal use of Remy Mazelan and cardiac surgery going forward. Indeed, Terry. You know, our journey through the studies has shed some light on potential advantages of Remy Mazelan from its lesser cardiodepressant effects to its role potentially in reducing postoperative delirium or maybe even contributing in some cases, depending on how you administer it. Uh, certainly, that's specific to cardiovascular procedures. 
However, as we continue to explore these possibilities, it's definitely crucial to acknowledge that ongoing research and the need for nuanced understanding of its administration in various clinical settings is paramount. Yeah. And so to our listeners out there, this is just the beginning of our exploration and, and the clinical experience with Remy Maslam. So if you found this discussion intriguing, as I'm sure most all of you did, uh, <laughs> be sure to check out our additional podcasts on Beyond the Mask. We really appreciate you taking a listen to the things that we produce, you know, where we delve into the various aspects of anesthesia, healthcare, and medical advancements. Absolutely, Terry. We'd love to hear your thoughts and insights, so don't forget to give us a few likes and drop a comment sharing your ideas on future podcasts. Your feedback is invaluable, as always, in shaping the content that we bring to you here on this show. Every single time. So until next time, keep exploring Beyond the Mask with us. Stay curious, stay informed, stay engaged in the fascinating world of anesthesia. Love you, mean it. Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. Welcome to CRNAeducation.com, your trusted provider for CPC core modules and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. And with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. Be 
sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.